All right. Welcome again to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. Hey, Todd. Hey, Corey. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. So yesterday marked 20 years since 9-11. Can you believe that? I mean, I can't hardly believe it's been that long. Yeah, it's amazing, really. I, I think it's worth taking a minute to reflect on that day and what it meant for America and the world. So why don't I start? Why don't we start here by, I'm just going to ask you, like, where were you when the planes hit the World Trade Towers? Well, you know, it was pretty early in Utah. I was actually at the gym and I was working out and I could see the TV. There were little TVs like by all of the cardio machines. And, but I wasn't on one and I, I could see the World Trade Center uh, and it was smoking. Uh, well, there was smoking coming out of it. And I don't know how many people remember, but on February 23rd, I think it was 1992, there was a terrorist attack and they had tried, they had blown up a, a car underneath one of the world trade centers. Yeah, Cobar And Tower. so my first thought was, why are they replaying this video from, you know, from nine years ago? Um, and I remember that was February 23rd because it was my wife's birthday. Um, so, um, and then I finally jumped on the treadmill and plugged in my headphones just before the second plane hit. And I remember thinking, that's so weird. How could a pilot was, you know, how could a pilot be so off course that they hit one of the World Trade Centers? Because <laughs> it hadn't yeah. dawned on me that this was intentional. And I, I wondered if they had a heart attack. And then when the second one hit, it's like the penny dropped. It's like, oh, oh my gosh, we're under attack. So I was a little bit slow <laughs> to figure out what was going on. Pro I probably wasn't the only one, but um, I came home and told my wife and my my. 28 year old son tells me he remembers, you know, leaving for school. And I was telling them, showing him the TV and telling them what was happening. Uh, just a crazy, crazy day. Yeah. I had some, uh, similar stories. So I was in SLA community college and I think an Institute class and the very beginning of the class, someone had come in to sit and said, Oh, a plane crashed into a building in New York. I'm like, Oh, interesting. Okay. Go on with the class. And then when we came out, uh, I walked across this gym where a bunch of people were, collected standing looking at a tv and uh, within like two minutes of walking over to that tv the second plane bashed crashed right into the second plane in second tower and you're like oh my gosh same as you my thought was this is not just some idiot pilot this is this yeah is a big deal yeah and i remember just spending just being completely transfixed completely locked to the tv for days days and days and days and well, and we all thought that that was just the first wave. I mean, yeah, for right. those of us that were adults, I remember I took my my little TV to work. I went to my law firm that day, but you know, I worked in a skyscraper downtown Salt Lake, and we we're all wondering was a plane going to yeah. fly into our skyscraper? And I kept on thinking, well, we're just little Salt Lake. Why would any terrorists care about us? <laughs> but you just don't know. You know, you just don't know. Yeah, and I mean, the you had the the Pentagon hit, and then uh, the Pennsylvania crash, and I think it's hard to express, I think, to folks who are even a little bit younger. I mean, there was a feeling that this was just the beginning. And uh, for the first time, you know, we all felt unsafe. And I remember just spending hours and hours thinking about what should I do as a result of this? And, uh, and I think a lot of people were a lot of soul searching during that time. But as a corollary, I, I mean, again, I, I think it's hard to overestimate the magnitude of what came after 9-11. We had the war in Afghanistan that has come to an end just in the last yeah. few weeks. and A very abrupt end, yeah. 
you know, abrupt end and the war in Iraq that completely overwhelmed the Bush administration, especially the second half. So how do you think the world has changed in the last 20 years? Well, I mean, initially for a few days, weeks or months after 9-11, I think we were probably, you know, the most, I felt the most unifying that we were as a country. People kind of put partisans politics aside, but boy, that sure didn't last long. Now, I think the last couple of years we've been um, as divided or more divided, I think, than we've ever been. I, I don't remember the the uh, unrest with the Vietnam War and things like that. So I'm not saying that we've never been divided before, but this this is pretty bad now. Um, how has the world changed? I mean, boy, I mean, more ways than I can probably articulate, but uh, you know, number one, I think um, a lot pe- a lot of people are a lot less naive than they were, you know, back then in terms of what's happening. Or, you know, I don't think people believe anymore that if something happens 2,000 miles away, it, you know, it can't affect them because it, it yeah. can. Um, and I'm grateful for our technological advances. You know, there, there were cell phones back then, but there weren't, they weren't smartphones. They weren't nearly as ubiquitous as they are yeah. now. And, you know, we have the drone technology and the satellite technology now. If, if something like this happened now, we, we would be able to respond, I think, a lot quicker a lot sooner than we could back then. Um, but unfortunately, there's a lot of evil in this world. There's a lot of people that want to destroy us. There's a lot of people that um, uh, are offended by our lifestyle and our culture and our values. And um, I, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, I would reiterate, I, I don't think either before or since, at least in my lifetime, I'm not that old, but America really came together after 9-11. I mean, yeah. The, the, I think the visuals of New York City and, you know, George Bush, like standing on top of the rubble and, uh, you know, a woman yells, I can't hear you. And he says, I can hear you, you know, I mean, yeah. it's pretty amazing. And he had a 90% approval rating. Now that went down to dip at around 20% yeah, <laughs> in a few years with the Iraq war and definitely went a different direction in a lot of ways, but I kind of hoped, not kind of, I really hoped that the pandemic would bring us together in that way. In the spring of 2020, there still was a, few, a sense that maybe that could happen. And it really is sad and, you know, kind of a unfortunate commentary on America that we, we just couldn't. And to your point, like, instead, we chose more division. So it's kind of a bummer. So one legacy for 9-11 for me is an example of America can come together, you know, can, can unite and be on the same side, everybody on the same side and feel like Americans together, which I thought was pretty cool. Well, and, you know, of course, Trump was president when we all learned about COVID-19. And I'm not saying his response was perfect because it was far from perfect. But, um, I'm, you know, l- looking back now a year and a half uh, and knowing that the pandemic was spreading weeks or months in the, in the U.S. before we ever knew about it. Um, you know, for obvious reasons, but um, I'm not sure how much more he could have done or if it would have made a difference. And looking at every other civilized country in the world, I mean, there there are some countries with, um, you know, a lower death rate than the U.S. and there's uh, some countries with a higher death rate, but um, it, it seems like the national media and to a certain extent, the Democrats, they saw COVID as an opportunity to 
embarrass Trump and to and and to defeat him and his bid for reelection. And I think it worked. I think absent COVID, I think Trump was much more likely to get reelected. Yeah. But yeah. Um, you know, I, I hear people accusing Republicans of making COVID political. I think um, I think COVID whether it's Democrats, Republicans, or the media, it is political. It's going to remain political. And, and I agree with you. I think that's unfortunate. So Biden um, announced a, a vaccine mandate. Um, some people are pushing back on the word mandate because there is an option for people to get tested um, once a week, which um, seems punitive and there's been no mention of who would pay for those tests because they're yeah. not free. Uh, but up until now, uh, including Jen Pat Paskey as, as recently as uh, July uh, denied that they would go with a mandate. And now they've yeah. kind of jumped in with both feet. So is this going to work Corey or will it backfire? Well, just as you said, he, he's been saying for weeks that he didn't have the authority to do this, but I mean, it's worth stepping back. So there's, there's two pieces. The first is a mandate for all government contractors and there is no there there is no escape hatch there it is a full mandate so still not clear how many employees are impacted if your company has government contracts so it could be employees working on that contract alone or it could capture all employees at your company if you have any government contracts so that those rules still need to be written and the second is the more breathtaking of the two which is the OSHA emergency temporary standard. So OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And this rule is going to say that all employers of 100 or more employees, uh, every employee must either get vaccinated or submit to regular testing. And like you said, it's unclear whether Biden expects the company to pay for the cost of regular testing or whether he intends to repurpose funds or you know, probably pull it out of the border wall or something. But in any we'll case, the employer pay for it. And it probably make the employer that that's most likely what's going to happen, but we'll, we'll have to see. But I think this will rank among the most jaw dropping power grabs in executive branch history. And you and I have already said this before. I've said this before, and I would stipulate again that vaccines work and everyone within the sound of my voice should expect to contract COVID. That's the truth. I work with some of the most sophisticated analytics companies in the world, and they're really starting to say that what they're seeing is that basically everyone was going to catch COVID. The question is whether you catch it having been vaccinated or unvaccinated. Yeah. The, the vaccines will save your life. So please, anyone listening, take the vaccine. But that said, this move by President Biden is going to be litigated. OSHA is this tiny agency charged with workplace safety programs like hard hats and ergonomic chairs. You know of them because in every office, there's these safety rules on the wall that, uh, yeah. that you're on your first day of work, you're mandated to read. And you're like, why am I reading these? But um, but just like the CDC imposing an eviction ban well outside of its authority, that's what OSHA here, they, they think they've found a backdoor, uh, even though, like, you know, Biden said for several weeks that he didn't have the authority to do this. But now they think, oh, actually, maybe we do. I just found this at the bottom of a hat. And uh, but health and welfare are the purview of state law. And this is an entirely new level of command and control from Washington, D.C. I think a lot of people would agree with that. So I think, you know, this president won't rest until the federal government controls every aspect of your life. I fully expect the rule will quickly tie up in court. Yeah. One thing we didn't mention is there's a, a purported $14,000 uh, per incident. Yeah. Per, uh, yeah per incident. And um, yeah, so I, I, my best guess right now is this mandate will never go into effect right now. We have an announcement, but there's no verbiage. 
yeah. for unions to review, for employers to review, for governors or attorney generals to litigate. Um, that'll probably take weeks or months to get that verbiage. I, I think that um, a couple of weeks ago on the eviction moratorium, Biden basically said, I don't have the authority to extend it, but I'm just going to extend it anyway. Yeah. And by the Supreme, by the time the Supreme Court gets around to acting on this, then it'll, it'll have been extended. I, I think that my guess is that this is a similar strategy and that Biden figures by the time the U.S. Supreme Court rules on this and rules it to be unconstitutional, um, that uh, enough companies are going to have twisted the arms of their yeah. employees to get vaccinated, uh, that he'll say, see, I told you so it worked. Um, and I think that's a scary precedent if we have the president of the United States who is just blatantly doing unconstitutional things saying, well, by the time you stop me, I'm going to get what I wanted in the first place. Well, and isn't wasn't that the central one of the well, not the but many one of the central complaints against Trump that they had right is that yeah. Trump acted extra legally, and now they're just blatantly doing it and saying well, actually saying the, they are the complaint that Trump that they had against Trump was uh, if we elected Trump X Y and Z could happen, <laughs> and most of those things never came into fruition, um, but with Biden it's actually they're actually happening. I mean. They said that Trump would act like a dictator. Well, now we have Biden acting like a dictator. Yeah, yeah. They said that Trump would, um, you know, cost people's lives, you know, in terms of in, in, in military combat. I'm not talking about COVID. Uh, be, and, and by the way, we're, we're now in a point now in COVID where more people in the United States have died of COVID under President Biden's administration than died under Trump's administration. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we passed that threshold several weeks ago. Um, and of course, the media won't, won't tell you that because, you know, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but the, the lack of civil um, c- civics understanding and curio- intellectual curiosity in this country is really sad. I've seen several people on Facebook and they'll cite an OSHA statute and say, see, it is constitutional because Congress said we can do it. Um, no, uh, another judge. Con- Congress doesn't get to define the Constitution. The U.S. Supreme Court does. That's number one. And then people will say, well, no, in 1905, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states could mandate a vaccine. So this issue has already been decided. Well, there was a key word there, and that was states. And if you don't understand the difference between a state mandating a vaccine and a federal uh, the federal government or an executive order mandating a vaccine, I suggest you go back to fifth grade and take you know, <laughs> your government class again, because there's a huge difference between what states are allowed to do uh, and what the federal government is not allowed to do. And, and this falls squarely in that distinction. So uh, we've talked this week about the massive $3.5 trillion social spending package that the Democrats are working to ram through Congress using the partisan special process of a budget reconciliation. This past week, they seem to be running into trouble with some of their own members, um, specifically Joe Manchin, who no one had heard of uh, <laughs> before the Georgia runoff elections. Uh, he's a senator from West Virginia. Uh, he's almost a household name now, at least for people that follow uh, Senate, state, you know, federal politics. Um, we're relying on the small group of Democrats in Congress to slow the thing down. Do you think that that strategy is going to work, Corey? Well, it is funny how uh, someone will rise when when the moment is right, I guess. But I actually think Senator Manchin deserves a, some legitimate credit here. If this abominable three and a half trillion trillion with a T bill shrinks or they fail to pass it, I think we'll have Senator Manchin to thank. 
he, he published an op-ed. He's, he's actually done a few of these. And it's funny because I guess they don't talk to each other face-to-face. So they, he, he talks to other Democrats, Democratic leaders through his op-eds. But he said this time that he wouldn't vote to spend half that much. Now, the truth is, he's still willing to spend over a trillion and probably two trillion. So, I mean, he's still a Democrat. So, yeah. But he and others are having second thoughts about the gigantic spending and the disastrous tax increases. Democrats want to train, uh, raise taxes. That's just their nature. But, you know, Manchin has publicly declared some limits, thankfully. Time will tell if it will work. Democrats in the Senate need every single vote. Remember, it's 50-50. And so it's, they take the tie-breaking vote of the vice president. They can't lose any Democratic votes. And even in the House, Pelosi, I think, can only lose three. Yeah, th- I think it's three. So she's walking a tightrope, too. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, I think they do get a mammoth bill across the finish line, but hopefully it's smaller than the, than the blockbuster blowout that uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden want. Yeah, and, you know, thank goodness for Joe Manchin. Uh, he, his op-ed, if you actually read it, is really articulate and it makes good points, none of which I can disagree with him on. And um, here we have a politician who is actually trying to represent his constituents rather than bowing to the will of the most extreme um, elements of his own political party. I think it's refreshing. I think he's doing, uh, in a, to a certain extent, what people criticized uh, uh, Mitt Romney for doing under the Trump administration. So um, our country has always liked someone who's willing to buck the trend. Uh, John That's McCain right. got a lot of mileage out of that. And as a Republican, I, I think every Republican should be grateful that Joe Manchin has a spine. And um, I think that the flip side of, of, of this is that Joe Biden um, is a weak, very weak president. Nobody expects that he's going to have any coattails uh, in the midterm elections next year. Nobody expects that he'll be reelected or even run for reelection. And um, uh, Manchin has jumped off of uh, the sinking Biden ship. And he's saying, I'm not sticking my neck out uh, for this president's agenda. So yeah. Uh, some people, and I think it's not inaccurate, are calling this the end of end of the Biden um, agenda because without without Democrats willing to stick their neck out for Biden's priorities, uh, Biden will get nothing else done uh, yeah. for the rest of his term. Yeah, you can't imagine after assuming they pass this that next year they'll have much to do. But no, I mean the Republicans are are very well poised to take the House in. 2022. I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but um, I think everyone, including Senate, uh, including Democrats, are expecting it. We don't know what will happen with the Senate, but even if if they maintain or even increase control in the Senate, which I think is possible but unlikely, without with a Republican-led House, then Congress is effectively um, not going to do anything for Biden. You know, for at least two years. All right. Well, the Cook Political Report rates Utah's fourth congressional district held by Burgess Owens as, quote, no or minimal risk of flipping parties. So in other words, uh, the Cook team, very reputable. I've been a big fans of theirs for many years. They do great stuff. They predict that Owens should easily win re-election. So, Todd, what do you think? Are they right? Well, I, I think it's premature because right now the legislature is in the process of redrawing his district. So, so they're basically making a prediction on a district that hasn't been redrawn. But the odds of them redrawing, the odds of the legislature redrawing the district to favor a Democrat 
I think are extremely low. And so I think they are right. <laughs> I think they are right. But, and I didn't read the report, but I'm, I'm hoping that they're acknowledging that. I mean, I, I, my guess is their prediction is based on the current, um, the current boundaries in the district. Um, and that district has grown faster than some of the other yeah. congressional districts in Utah. I mean, also, isn't, doesn't it more or less assume that Ben McAdams doesn't get back in the race? And I'm not saying um, Ben would win, but. No, I think they're saying that if, even if Ben gets back in the race, that he's not going to win. And I think that's the safe assumption since Ben couldn't win that race yeah. in a. That's a safe election. assumption, but is it no or minimal risk? I don't know. I mean, you still have. Yeah, that seems pretty strong. <clears throat> but, you know, I just have to assume that they're weighing in the fact that the legislature will probably beef up the yeah the Republican credentials in that district a little bit at the expense of either Chris Stewart or Blake Moore. That's probably um, right. That's probably right. Or John Curtis, I guess. And we can't imagine who the other challengers at this point would even be. So Yeah, well, he has one announced that no one's heard of. Um, there's one guy already running against him. Um, mm -hmm. I can't even think of his name, so... Okay, um, so BYU formally accepted an invite to join the Big 12. Um, so we've now got two Utah football programs as of 2023 who will be in the Big 5, P5 conferences. Um, are you excited about this, Corey? Oh, this is a long time coming, you know, and I, and I know we have some U fans, I'm sure, who are listening. But, hey, look, you want to have tougher competition too, right? I mean, I don't know that BYU's had a better weekend in the last 15 years than this weekend not since First, 1984 uh, <laughs> getting accepted into the big 12 yes texas and oklahoma are not going to be there but it's still serious and i think it'll well, last if the current plans remain we will overlap with texas by one year oh by a year yeah which will be great and hopefully we play both of them but yeah and then and then finally getting that monkey off our backs after a decade yeah of winning last night i'll be honest with you i know this is shame I didn't watch it because I was worried I was going to be pissed off. So, well, I wouldn't, I didn't let myself get excited about the, the big 12 invite because I got really excited in 2010 or 2011 yeah. and just felt stupid. And I got a little bit excited five or six years ago and just felt embarrassed. And I'm just like, yeah, fool me once, shame on me. But I just, I figured it was going to happen, but I just, I couldn't let myself, I emotionally, I just had to stay guarded. And I've kind of became the same way, become the same way with rivalry week. Cause you know, you, you get burned four five, six, seven, eight times. Exactly. Uh, I was at that game at Rice Eccles stadium when Zach Wilson had led the team to a 21 zero lead over Utah two, two or three years ago. And we still lost that game. So in the third quarter or fourth quarter, when it looked like Utah was going to start a comeback, I'm like, Oh boy, here we go again. Um, but I will say uh, the game did feel different. I mean, there were several of these rivalry games where it was BYU causing a fumble or two in the first. Yeah. Quarter. It's just one fumble or another. Yeah. Um, and it just felt like, you know, that the youths showed up ready to play and, and we were, you know, we were standing there with our tails between our legs and it kind of felt the opposite last night. It felt like BYU had a jump on them. It felt like our quarterback got better each quarter and their quarterback got worse each quarter. Um, I mean, they're obviously, they have some talented players on there, but, but we were picked by, you know, the odds makers to lose by seven. Yeah. So that's a pretty big, that's a two touchdown swing. All right. We're over time. Great stuff. All right. Thanks, Corey. Yep. Thanks. Catch everybody next week. week.